0: This podcast is brought to you by the GOSH Learning Academy.
1: Hello and welcome to Master the MRCPCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need to know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the digital learning fellow at GOSH. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. James Davison, a consultant in metabolic medicine at Great Ormond Street Hospital, on the topic of lysosomal storage diseases. We are covering the clinical features, etiology, investigations, and management of this range of conditions. This topic corresponds to several points of the RCPCH theory exam syllabus under Metabolism and Metabolic Medicine. Thank you so much, Dr. Davison, for coming on the show today. Could I start by asking, what would you like people to get out of this podcast?
0: I think the main aim really from my perspective is just to give an introduction to these rare disorders, to give a little bit of a background and the overview so that there's more awareness of, of when these conditions can present and what are some of the features to look out for that we can make the diagnosis. And also just to paint a bit of a picture around some of the new treatment options that we've got for these conditions as well.
1: I suppose we should start at the beginning with a definition. So what is a lysosomal storage disease?
0: A lysosomal storage disease is one of quite a number of individual disorders. There's over 60 individual conditions that are described as lysosomal storage disorders. All of them affect some way of how the the lysosome within the cell is working. The lysosomes in our cells are there for many different reasons. One of the major functions is a a waste recycling function, breaking down large macromolecules and helping in the normal homeostasis and maintenance of the cell. And when some aspect of the lysosome is not working, you then get an accumulation or a storage of some of those big molecules within the lysosome, dysfunction of the lysosomes, and, and that then spreads out to cause problems for the cells and the tissues and and causes the clinical problems. So a lysosomal storage disease is a condition where you're getting an abnormality of the normal lysosomal function and then all of the multi-system effects from that.
1: And how common are these conditions?
0: Each of them is a very rare disorder and the epidemiology for each one varies, but they're all classified as rare or ultra-rare disorders. There are, as I said, quite a large number of these conditions, so cumulatively together, they do add up to a a sizable population. Just to give an example, within Our team here at Great Ormond Street, we look after about 300 children who've got a lysosomal storage disorder. So that is out of obviously a large population of a large part of England. So the bottom line is these are rare disorders. Together they do constitute an important group and it's really important that we as paediatricians are aware of these conditions so that if we do come across the rare child who does have one, we can help in both the diagnosis and in in managing those children appropriately.
1: You've touched... A little bit on this already in your definition, but if I could just get you to delve in a bit further into what causes the various lysosomal storage diseases.
0: When we're talking about the etiology of these conditions, I think it's important to note that they're all genetic disorders. So they all originate because there is a a fault within an individual gene. And because of that genetic defect, you then get the pathology emerging in the lysosome. Most of them are due to deficiency of one of the enzymes that should be operating within the lysosome to effectively cut up those large macromolecules. The lysosomes contain a large number of the enzymes that work in that acidic environment. And if you're missing one of those enzymes, you get accumulation of the specific substrate. So the condition is caused because you've got a mutation within the gene. That means that you have an impaired enzyme activity because the gene that encodes the enzyme is is defective. And because you've got that enzyme deficiency, that causes the accumulation of the substrate of that enzyme. So the thing that the enzyme should be breaking down isn't being broken down. So you get accumulation and storage of that. So the conditions are genetic and most of the lysosomal disorders are, as I said, due to a a defect within a gene that encodes one of the lysosomal enzymes. Some of the rarer conditions that affect other aspects of lysosomal function, for example, in trafficking the enzymes into the lysosome or a gene that encodes, for example, some component of the lysosomal membrane. The bottom line is that all of these affect some aspect of the normal lysosomal function and the end result is that you get the accumulation of the abnormal material within the lysosome and that causes the disease. So they are genetic disorders. And in terms of the genetics, it's also worth mentioning that most of them are autosomal recessive conditions. So the gene is on one of the autosomal chromosomes. So it's been inherited from both parents who would be usually a carrier of the condition affecting one of their copies of the gene and then because the child has inherited both abnormal genes, both copies of their gene, both the maternal and the paternal genes are affected and they have the condition. There are one or two exceptions, for example, MPS2, mucopolysaccharidosis type 2 or Hunter syndrome is, is an X-linked condition, but as I said, the others are on the whole autosomal recessive disorders. A slightly long answer, but that's the the etiology of those conditions.
1: Just for my interest, is being a carrier of the disorder, so if you inherit one faulty gene but have still one working gene, do they have any difference from a metabolic point of view in how they process these substrates or are they completely phenotypically normal?
0: Good question. Phenotypically, we would expect them to be normal from a clinical perspective. However, we do know that if you're a heterozygous carrier, If you then measure the enzyme activity in the laboratory for whichever enzyme it is we're talking about, you will see often that the parent, the heterozygous carrier has a lower level of enzyme activity compared to someone who's not a carrier. However, um, there's a threshold of how much enzyme activity you need before it starts causing an issue. And Actually, as a general rule, you only need about 15 or 20% of the normal enzyme activity to avoid that accumulation of waste material within the lysosome. So we can sometimes pick up on the enzyme testing when someone has a heterozygous slightly lower level, but it's not low enough to be causing problems. That's really important to understand that when we're interpreting some of the results that we get through for, for the testing.
1: So you've talked about how actually there are a large number of different lysosomal storage diseases according to which gene or enzyme is defective. Do you have a good structure for classifying them?
0: There are different approaches to how you can classify the lysosomal disorders. Some are based on the clinical presentation and the different types of features that you see. One of the most common classification systems, and certainly the one that's been used historically, is based on the main abnormal material that's building up as a result of that enzyme deficiency. And that's where a lot of the names of the conditions have come from. So the the commonest group and the one that's perhaps most familiar are the mucopolysaccharide disorders, the MPS conditions. They are a group where the main material that's building up is the mucopolysaccharide, which is also called glycosaminoglycans, which are complex sugar protein molecules. So you've got the mucopolysaccharide disorders as one group. And then you have other groups that are also named after the main substance that's building up. So there are the sphingolipid disorders, which are conditions affecting the complex myelin proteins that mainly affect the, the central nervous system. We have the oligosaccharidoses, which are the conditions where the oligosaccharides are accumulating, and others as well. So that's a classification of the disorders in terms of the substrate that's building up. And then the other way that we've already talked a bit about is it's classifying according to the mechanism of the disease, whether it's the primary enzyme deficiency or a membrane protein deficiency and so on. So yeah, different systems for classification depending on how how you're looking at that.
1: How might a child with a lysosomal storage disease present?
0: The clinical features and how a child might present are actually very diverse. And that's one of the challenges in terms of recognition and making a diagnosis of these conditions. They can present with features at any age and, and actually we can start the discussion even before birth. So in the antenatal period, there can be some abnormalities detected during pregnancy. So for example, hydrops vitalis, if that's a non-immune hydrops, can be due to a lysosomal storage disorder. So that can be an important feature. Some of the children can have some abnormal features noted in the neonatal period, with some of the most severe forms of the condition. Although usually most of the children appear healthy and normal at birth, but then different features appear gradually over early infancy and childhood. And these are multi-system disorders, so that the symptoms and the signs that emerge can be very varied. Some of those affect the appearance of the somatic appearance of the child and they can have some different dysmorphic features that become apparent. Again, usually they're not noticed at birth, but gradually over time, as there's accumulation and storage of that abnormal material within the soft tissues of the face, that coarse facial appearance can appear. Often looking back in the family photos, families will notice in retrospect that there'd been a change in appearance, and particularly if the child looks different to their parent's or the siblings, that's an important clue. Other features that can be noted in terms of the somatic features, they can get organomegaly. So big liver, big spleen, hepatosplenomegaly can be seen. And that may be picked up as an incidental clinical observation. If a child has been examined for another reason, the children can in the different disorders develop other soft tissue or connective tissue problems, such as hernias, problems affecting their ear, nose and throat are common. So hearing impairments can be a, an early feature recurrent ear infections, otitis media, recurrent throat infections, and also problems with noisy breathing, um, snoring, and even obstructive sleep apnea can be a presenting feature. Some of them can have cardiac involvement, so they may be noted to have a valvular pathology, so it may be a murmur that's been detected. A proportion can present with a dilated or even a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And then one of the other big systems that we need to consider is the the neurology, the central nervous system, because many of these conditions do affect the brain and the nervous system, and they may present with developmental delay affecting any of the domains of development. Speech delay is common as well. And then a real red flag in terms of the neurology is if the child starts to develop a pattern consistent with neurological developmental regression. So they're losing um, developmental milestones. That's a real red flag that there's a progressive underlying disorder where something is continuing to go wrong. And when we're seeing a child with developmental regression, the metabolic conditions as a whole need to be considered, but particularly the lysosomal disorders. So if there's a history of a child losing skills, it's really important we consider that. And linked in with the central nervous system, the eyes can often give some clues as well. So in terms of ophthalmology assessments, children can have visual function impairments. They can start to get corneal pathology and corneal clouding in some of the conditions. There are a whole host of different symptoms that can be there. And what we often find at the point that a diagnosis is finally made, when you look back at the history, is that children have had a number of these different individual problems or features. And it's only when someone starts to join the dots and thinking that we're seeing a number of these things that the penny drops and the diagnosis is reached. So yeah, those are the different ways, as I said, that they can present and obviously they can present to a number of different professionals as well depending on which of those problems is there. So if it's the hernia, they may have gone to see the general surgeons. If it's the developmental issue, they may be with community paediatrics or even neurology. So it's important that all of us are aware of these potential diagnoses so that we can help in trying to get that diagnosis.
1: Yeah, it sounds quite challenging because a lot of the features are quite non-specific and quite common presentations in a lot of children.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think it's if you see a child who has got perhaps more than one of these things, so a child with a hernia and ear infections and some developmental issues, that's not just a hernia on its own. As I said, it's trying to see the bigger picture. It's good practice for all of us to be doing is not taking the presenting feature on its own, but looking at the, the wider context.
1: How would you approach a patient presenting with a potential lysosomal storage disease? Is there a panel of investigations that you would do?
0: Yeah, so I think if we are considering the child who may have a lysosomal disorder, we would obviously have gone through our detailed history to look for any of those salient features, looking at the presentation and the examination of the child, looking again in a targeted way for any of those features. And if if we're at the point of thinking we need to be investigating further, there may be other Imaging investigations that have been done that might help in terms of that evaluation, whether that's brain imaging or skeletal imaging that may show some of the abnormal dysostosis multiplex features that we see in in some of these conditions. And then we're wanting to go onto those diagnostic tests. There are different approaches to doing that. And what we would certainly look at doing is using blood and urine samples for the biochemistry to evaluate further. And we would do some screening tests because there's a lot of overlap between the different disorders. We would start with some screening tests first and then seeing where that takes us. The first test that's important is the urine for the glycosaminoglycans or the urine GAGs. That's the screening test for the mucopolysaccharide disorders, the MPS conditions. That test would look at the quantification of the amount of GAG in the urine to see if it was higher than normal and then also a method for looking at which of the subtypes of the GAGs are there. So that's a GAG electrophoresis or done by other methods as well. So that's the screening test for the the MPS disorders. And then the other assessment that we would look at is what's often called the white cell enzymology or the lysosomal enzymology. And that's a blood sample where you are measuring the enzyme activities. If you have a very specific disorder that we suspect either from the urine sample or from the clinical picture or the family history, we might target to do one or two specific enzymes, but otherwise we'd then, if we're not sure of a specific disorder, that test is often done as a panel of enzymes. And so if you have told the lab that this is a child with hepatosplenomegaly, they will do a panel of enzymes looking for the lysosomal disorders that we know are associated with hepatosplenomegaly. There's also a similar panel for lysosomal enzymes associated with neurological problems. So if you've got a child who's got neurodevelopmental issues or that regression, then there's a different panel of enzymes that would be applied, looking particularly for the lysosomal disorders that have a predominant effect on the central nervous system. So we've done our screening tests, the urine, the the lysosomal enzymology, And then molecular genetic testing, so DNA sample, to look at the specific genes is another route. Now we may do the genetics either to confirm what we've seen with our biochemistry, so we're doing potentially targeted single gene testing, but increasingly we're seeing children who are coming through who have had very broad genetic screening. For example, they've had a whole exome or whole genome sequencing done as the first line test, and that may have picked up variants in one of the lysosomal genes. And then in that situation, we're having to reverse engineer the situation and go back to do the biochemistry to confirm sometimes what are often variants of uncertain significance. So we're looking at each of those levels, the substrate, the enzyme, and the molecular genetics to reach a, a diagnosis.
1: Moving on to management, how would you manage these conditions?
0: Yeah, so the management is is challenging. And I think it, these are, as we said, multi-system disorders that cause a lot of different problems. And so the management approach that you have to take is very much a holistic, multidisciplinary team approach to to management and evaluating what the children are needing at any one time. So there would be the treatments that are those symptomatic management addressing the particular problems that that child has. So if, for example, they've got cardiac involvement, you may have input with a cardiology team. If they've got significant obstructive sleep apnea, they may need interventions such as adenotonsillectomy. If they've got seizures due to epilepsy as a part of the condition, then again, standard management of that would be important. So there are those symptomatic approaches to the treatment. We're aware that the children need a lot of other input in terms of the therapy teams around them. So that will be an important part of our management, making sure they've got that support there And, and not forgetting the importance of the educational aspects as well. So support for children in the education environment. One thing that's very important is that an anaesthetic for these children can be challenging. So one important message, I think, is that Children with these conditions can have difficult airways and they can have also cervical spine instability or stenosis. And so that's an important message. If we suspect a lysosomal disorder, that if we're planning an anaesthetic for an MRI scan or a gastrostomy, that the anaesthetists are aware of the potential problems and that those procedures are then done in a centre that can manage those problems appropriately. So those are the kind of the symptomatic, non-specific treatments for these conditions. There are some conditions that have got very specific treatments. And perhaps it will be useful to talk a bit about some of the very specific treatments where we're actually aiming to target the underlying problem rather than just managing and addressing the symptoms and the problems that have emerged. So we've said that the conditions on the whole are due to a deficiency of an enzyme within the lysosome. And so there are treatments that are forms of enzyme replacement therapy. Where we're aiming to replace that missing enzyme within the lysosome so that you've got some enzyme that works that can then start to clear that stored material. And there are for a number of the conditions approved and licensed treatments that are those enzyme replacement therapies that are given as intravenous infusions every week or every two weeks to the patients. And so we've got those for a number of, for example, the the mucopolysaccharide conditions, a number of those have enzyme replacement therapies available which can certainly improve the outcome. They are not curative by a long shot, but they are specifically able to improve the accumulation of the GAGs within the cells and improve the outcome for those patients. The enzymes that we use, the enzyme replacement therapies, they're not able to cross the blood-brain barrier. And we've said that for many of these conditions, there is an important central nervous system component. And so those treatments that we currently have aren't able to address that. So if you've got one of the conditions that affects the brain, then we need to consider other ways of trying to treat that. And so for that reason, we consider other approaches. And one of those is the use of bone marrow transplant or hematopoietic stem cell transplant. And what the rationale for that is, is that you are giving the child a donor's bone marrow cells that are able to populate around the body. Those cells themselves are able to produce the enzyme correctly. And we know our cells naturally excrete and secrete some of these enzymes which can then be taken up into the child's own cells and trafficked into the lysosomes. And you get this cross-correction of the child's lysosomes from the donor cells. And those are those donor cells are able to get into the brain. And so that's able to treat the central nervous system. And so that's our treatment of choice, for example, for MPS1, Hurler syndrome, the more severe form of that condition. And then there are other approaches to trying to treat the brain and There's a a first licensed uh, enzyme treatment for one of the Batten disease conditions which are also within the lysosomal sphere. That has to be given via an indwelling intracerebroventricular device. So you're giving the enzyme directly into the central nervous system. So those are the very specific enzyme replacement therapies. Other treatment options include some small molecule therapies where we're able to give a small molecule either as a substrate reduction to try and reduce down the amount of material that's building up in the lysosome or operates in other ways to support the function of any residual enzyme. And then perhaps even more exciting than that, the field is moving on and actually we're starting to see the first of the gene therapies coming through where we're actually, instead of just trying to temporarily replace the enzyme that's missing, we're correcting at the genetic level so the child is then able to make their own enzyme. And we've had the first of those therapies now approved for use within the NHS for metachromatic leukodystrophy, which is one of the rare lysosomal disorders. And there are other clinical trials as well that are going on as well, evolving those treatment options. So, yeah, it's a long answer to your question about how do you manage these disorders. The bottom line is that they need a very broad, holistic, multidisciplinary team approach to managing all of the problems that we know occur. And then we've got those very specific disease-modifying treatments as well, which we need to consider.
1: And what's the prognosis of these conditions? And has the prognosis of some of the conditions been affected by the fact that there are now some specific treatments available?
0: Yeah, that's a very important question. It varies widely between each of the individual um, disorders. And even within an individual disorder, it depends on how severely affected the child is. If we take as one example, Pompe disease, which is one of the lysosomal glycogen storage disorders, in its most severe form, the infantile Pompe children present at just a few months of age with a severe cardiomyopathy and severe hypotonia, so a very floppy infant with cardiorespiratory failure. And we know that to those infants, the natural history is that they wouldn't survive beyond 12 months. But now with treatment, we are starting and we're just transitioning our first patients into the adult clinic who have been treated since infancy. So that has really revolutionised the outcome. Again, still not perfect and there's still way to go in terms of improving the functional outcome, but certainly survival has improved a lot. But then you have at the other end of the spectrum within Pompe disease, those who present with late onset forms of the condition who are not presenting until adulthood or even in their 60s being diagnosed for the first time. So there's a broad spectrum in terms of that. For the other conditions as well, for those that we do have the disease modifying treatments, the treatments are able to improve the survival and the outcome. But as you said, none of them are so far curative. And so we have to counsel families very carefully around what we expect to actually be able to achieve with those treatments.
1: Moving on to our final quickfire questions. Are there any classic exam questions that pop up about this subject?
0: So these children can appear in your clinical exam? And obviously can appear in any of the different stations within that. So being aware that these children are there. And I think if you are confronted with a child that you think may have one of these conditions, just bearing in mind those principles we've been talking through would be important. And I think just having a broad awareness of some of the commoner of these rare conditions is important. And you may get some questions that come up on the genetic basis of the disorders, which I think is important to know.
1: Are there any useful resources that you would recommend?
0: There are lots of resources available. There's some very good information from some of the patient support organisations, such as the MPS Society UK, and you can look up their website and they have some very useful resources aimed for patients, but which give very good overviews of some of the conditions. The British Inherited Metabolic Diseases Group, BIMDG via their website, also have some resources for the management of these conditions. And there's a very good textbook that I'd recommend if you want to look into it in more detail, which is called Lysosomal Storage Disorders, a Practical Guide by Atul Meta and Brian Winchester, which goes through in a lot more detail if you want to delve in more detail than you'd need for the membership exam. But if this has piqued your interest, that would certainly be a good resource to look at.
1: And finally, what are your three takeaway learning points?
0: I think the first is that these conditions can present a challenge to recognize, but I want you to be considering these multi-system disorders in your differential diagnosis and just being aware of those red flags that we talked about. I think secondly, earlier diagnosis can mean that we can improve the outcome because we can start treatment earlier. So that's important that if you consider this diagnosis that we move on to make those uh, diagnostic tests. And then I think thirdly, the key learning point around the management of these disorders, we can't emphasise enough that it, it does require a big multidisciplinary team who are able to address all of the different challenges that come up for the children. And important to remember those anaesthetic concerns that we mentioned.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Davison. That's been fascinating.
0: Thank you again for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. PCH. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find GOSH Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. If you would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the GOSH Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye